Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor at the EU Summit in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. This week, a spectacular electoral victory by Boris Johnson and the Conservatives and a crushing defeat for Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. Despite nine years of Tory rule and the parliamentary chaos of the past three years, Labour couldn't even land the feeblest of punches on Boris Johnson. It was also a brutal night for the Lib Dems, but an excellent one for the Scottish Nationalists. I'll have analysis on how the Conservatives demolished the Red Wall in the Leave-voting North and Midlands. And I'll assess the mood in Brussels on what Boris Johnson's landslide win means for the next stage of Brexit, why next year will be dominated by the trade negotiations and what a border down the Irish Sea might look like. Well, first to you, Sean. How did we get to where we are with this overwhelming Tory majority and this sinking through the floor of the Labour Party vote? There seems to be some division as to which was the greater factor, Brexit or the personality of the Labour leader. Well, I was about to say there's two words, Brexit and Corbyn. Brexit was a huge issue. Uh, in this campaign. You could sense it around the country. A lot of people saying, look, we have to do this Brexit. We must get it off the agenda. We must get it done, uh, to use Dominic Cummings' phrase, that absolutely worked. It absolutely nailed it in this election and was the key, I think, to the Tories winning. Just constantly saying, get Brexit done, resonated with a public that is at this stage, fed up. They're fed up of the, the carry-on in the Parliament here in Westminster. They are fed up with the paralysis in politics. They are fed up with the country becoming a laughing stock internationally. They're just sick of listening to it. They just want to move on and get something else to talk about. So if a politician comes along and says, vote for me, I'm nearly there, and we will get Brexit done, they voted for it. Not in massive numbers, it has to be said. I mean, Boris Johnson's percentage increase uh, in the vote was 1.2% more than Theresa May got. And if you remember back two and a half years ago, Theresa May's outing at the election was being panned as a disaster. She did lose a parliamentary majority, came in with that minority, depended on the DUP, the rest is history. Uh, But she had done a lot better than David Cameron had a couple of years previously. And Boris Johnson has only nudged up the percentage share of the vote, but it's where that share went. He got lucky uh, in the constituencies that he needed to, to get lucky in. He got the gains where he needed to make the gains. And that was in places that had voted leave but were traditionally Labour voting uh, parts of the country. The so-called Red Wall across from the North Wales, the Midlands, the uh, north of England, South Yorkshire, uh, and off into the um, Durham uh, mining regions. Tony Blair's old seat in in Sedgefield uh, was one of the places that fell. These kind of places don't normally vote Tory, to say the least. 
But there were people there who just wanted to get Brexit done for a whole range of reasons, by the way. Some of them very passionately committed to the concept of Britain leaving the European Union, quite a lot of them, in fact. Uh, and that was driving uh, the, uh, the decisive, I would say, driving factor uh, in the vote. It was a proxy referendum, second referendum on Brexit. Uh, and OK, you can argue the toss about how more people backed, actually voted for uh, non-Brexit, either Remainer or second referendum parties by about 52%. But in the electoral system we have here, it's the 48% that got the majority. Uh, they are the ones who have the control of the parliament and they will pass Brexit through. And Boris Johnson... Second issue, of course, is Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, sorry, sorry I was, go I was, ahead, I was just going to say behind Boris Johnson, he had a united Conservative Party because he'd signed them all up to his withdrawal agreement. He'd consolidated the Leave vote through both the collapse or implosion of, of the Brexit Party and them voluntarily leaving the pitch in many places. And as you mentioned there, the message discipline, but the attacks that the Tories mounted on the opposition seemed to be falling on willing ears because Jeremy Corbyn seemed to be an issue as well, as you were about to say. Uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn definitely was an issue as a whole clutch of Labour MPs were very fast out of the traps uh, on Thursday night, just after that uh, exit poll was released, uh, straight onto social media saying, it's Jeremy Corbyn's fault. He's toxic to a lot of the voters around our way. We didn't like him. Uh, anybody who was out on the, the uh, poll trail, the canvas trail around the country, uh, will tell you they were finding the same thing. There was just enough voters out there for whom Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, I'm traditional Labour, my father or grandfather was a miner, etc., etc., but this guy Corbyn, there's something about him I don't like. Now, in post-election interviews today, Jeremy Corbyn was saying, look, I and my family and the people who support me have been subjected to vicious attacks over the past two and a half years, sustained, unrelenting attacks in the media. And there's a fair bit to that. He's also been subjected to attacks in uh, social media, in very, very targeted advertising. And one of the uh, interesting ones is in the Midlands area, around Birmingham, where uh, social media attack ads were playing up his uh, association with uh, the IRA and Sinn Féin, and of course Birmingham, uh, a place that was uh, attacked by the IRA, the Birmingham pub, pub bombings, uh, still a, a fairly bitter memory there. And that issue of Corbyn and the IRA did keep cropping up quite a lot in particular parts of the country, and I think it was stoked by that social media uh, campaign. Uh, the Marxist uh, political views as well, people were getting a bit worried about any implications it might have for uh, taxation uh, and spending. But also the anti-Semitism row, which we've talked about here previously, uh, that played rather badly. Uh, it's the intervention of the, the chief rabbi of Great Britain uh, was uh, pretty spectacular in that. And even today, uh, on Friday, as we're recording this, in the celebratory speeches this morning, Michael Gove, again, putting the boot in and saying, to my Jewish fellow citizens, you will never have to feel scared again in this country because basically we've seen off Corbyn. It was easy enough to pick things that he'd said in the past and throw it back at him. And as long as they kept throwing and throwing and throwing, uh, and he didn't really respond terribly well, it had to be said. He was, he's not a great communicator in the, the classic sense of, of great communicators that we understand in politics. Right. And he was up against a really good communicator in Boris Johnson, no doubt about it. 
Well, he also a, a picky communicator in that he chose not to subject himself, Boris Johnson, that is, to the uh, shellacking that Andrew Neil delivered to the other party leaders, which in retrospect may be considered uh, a canny move on his part. But of all of the things you've mentioned about Jeremy Corbyn, given that Brexit was so high on the agenda in this election, is the most damaging thing about Jeremy Corbyn was his seeming indecision or equivocation or attempt to please too many people at the same time on the issue of Brexit and the idea of renegotiating a deal in very short order, then successfully bringing back a proposed withdrawal agreement to the people of the UK and then remaining neutral on it. Did that ring hollow with people? Well, look how long it took you to say all that. And you compare it with what he was up against. Get Brexit done. It was just too complicated a position to sell easily. Get Brexit done, nice and easy. But that Labour position, as you say, he was trying to hit too many constituencies. He was trying to ride at least two horses simultaneously. He did go between the gap. Uh, people either didn't like it or didn't understand it. And then you've got some of the internal critics uh, uh, in the party particularly in uh, leave voting areas, and those people like Kate Hoey, uh, who uh, is a Brexiter, she was committed to the cause, uh, clashed with her own party. She was pinning the blame on uh, Labour's decline, saying, look, in 2017, we did great when Labour itself was a committed Brexit party, as she would see it, uh, that they were committed to implementing the result of the referendum. She says it only started to go wrong when the party started to move and indeed drag Jeremy Corbyn personally in the direction of equivocation, to say the least, and trying to establish them as a party of a second referendum. That's where she thinks it went wrong anyway. Tony, you're over at the uh, European Summit. The, the mood music from Brussels on the Labour message was they were lukewarm on it, to, to say the least, and almost seemed to politely ignore it. I interviewed uh, Helen McEntee back last month uh, in the European Parliament in Strasbourg, Ireland's Minister for European Affairs. She said she didn't want to interfere in the British election, but she really wasn't giving much soot to the Labour Brexit stance. It, it seemed that a consensus had been reached amongst European heads of government that the withdrawal agreement um, negotiated by Boris Johnson, or amended rather by Boris Johnson, was the only show in town, and that really get Brexit done is pretty much the prevailing mood where you are too. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's, that's true. The problem for Jeremy Corbyn in Brussels was that the EU had negotiated a withdrawal agreement. It got rejected by the House of Commons. They went back and tried to provide legally binding reassurances, letters, clarifications. It was all very messy and time consuming and uh, you know, a little bit bothersome for the EU to do all this. Then it was rejected again and again. And then they had another renegotiation with Boris Johnson. Uh, and then when they got that done, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn might be elected prime minister and say, right, I'm going back to Brussels to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, you know, filled people here with dread. Uh, and he seemed also to have confused the withdrawal agreement with the future trade relationship. He said he'd go back and negotiate a, you know, a, a close relationship with the single market well the relationship with the single market is not a divorce issue it's a future relationship issue so there was all that and you know anybody i've spoken to who was present when Ber jeremy uh, corbyn was meeting people in brussels were fairly scathing about the contribution that he he made in meetings with uh, michel barnier uh, he didn't seem to be really clued into the detail 
Um, but of course, if Jeremy Corbyn had been by a miracle elected prime minister or head of a coalition government, of course, the EU would have had to deal with that particular reality. Um, you know, they, they and they couldn't necessarily expect him to just be uh, foisted with Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement. So there would have had to have been some uh, kind of creative uh, footwork there. But uh, in the end, I don't think anybody really believed that that was going to come to pass, even though people here were wargaming the different scenarios. I think the, the scenario they were fearful the most of was another hung parliament where, again, nothing could happen. Uh, so the mood here uh, at the summit, you know, yesterday, day one of the summit, yesterday being Thursday, Leo Varadkar kind of summed it up saying, look, we need a decisive result out of the general election. And, uh, you know, by by golly, you know, he, he got it uh, in spades. And, um, you know, that was echoed today. People right. were, you know, fairly warmly uh, congratulating Boris Johnson in his victory. But again, you know, a little bit bittersweet because it means that Britain is definitely out. That really is the end of an era. So there was a bit of a bittersweet feeling around the building today. OK, well, before we get into the reaction there, let's hear uh, Boris Johnson's own uh, reaction to the result in the speech he gave outside of Downing Street. We had a, a change from get Brexit done uh, to a new catchphrase. Let's hear it. I frankly urge everyone on either side of what are after three years, three and a half years, after all, an increasingly arid argument. I urge everyone to find closure and to let the healing begin. And in the next few weeks and months, we will be bringing forward proposals to transform this country with better infrastructure, better education, better technology. And if you ask yourselves, what is this new government going to do? What is he going to do? with his extraordinary majority. I will tell you that is what we are going to do. We are going to unite and level up. Unite and level up, ringing together the whole of this incredible United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, together, taking us forward, unleashing the potential of the whole country. Sean, we heard Boris Johnson there speaking outside of Downing Street. More message discipline there. It's an attempt at laying the foundation for consolidating this term and even some people today, pundits, uh, sophologists and the like, talking about the potential of a second term. Is this what is, is unite and level up Boris Johnson's attempt to cement a legacy here? Well, it's certainly his, his attempt to uh, pitch himself to the public and try and certainly unite the disunited kingdom and the people uh, of it. I mean, that, that election result, as we said earlier, it was split down the middle with a slight bias towards people voting for parties opposed to Brexit or looking for a second referendum. Uh, it, the parties who were gung-ho for Brexit didn't manage to, to break for just over 48%. So, you know, the, the country is still divided, but it has to try and be united afterwards. So if Brexit does get removed as an issue, what else is there? Uh, so Boris Johnson, uh, in his speech today, reaching out to the other half of the country, uh, a lot of warm words about, you know, those of you who want us to stay in the European Union, uh, I respect you, I, I like your views on uh, having warm relations with our friends and neighbours in Europe and it's going to be really important in the months ahead as we shape a new relationship not just on trade but in a whole range of different areas uh, and that we all try and unite around that. Also uh, this other phrase level up this is classic Dominic Cummings stuff uh, it's, it's a cue 
for the kind of spending and investment programs that the Tories uh, are trying to line up. There's a lot of talk in Boris Johnson and has been throughout his campaign about one nation Tory party. So he's trying to, to, again, reach out. And that's not surprising. The people that won this election, that delivered this election to him, the Labour or former Labour voters in the north of England, they want change. They want something done. They want investment. Uh, but they also have ambitions of their own. And Johnson is trying to reach out to them and say, look, we could be the party for you for the future. And some of those uh, same cephalogists you were mentioning have been doing the deep dives into the figures uh, running through many years of, of voting records uh, have been saying that the Conservative Party has now becoming a predominantly working class party, certainly uh, even compared to when Theresa May was in charge of it. Just in the past few months, there's a big block of working class voters who have switched to backing the Conservative Party because of Boris Johnson. For the Labour Party, the converse is true. Uh, they have been losing Obviously, they're, they're working class voters, but they've been picking up graduates, office workers, IT type people in cities, uh, people who have uh, degree level education, becoming a, a more middle class party than uh, perhaps even the, the Conservative Party. So in terms of the electoral basis, the, the map has been changing. Britain has been a very, very volatile place in terms of electoral behaviour over the past decade. And uh, the Thursday election is just the latest iteration of that. And I think Boris Johnson and the Conservatives around him have been quite good at reading those changes uh, and pitching their political messages to them and capturing the right people in the right parts of the country, right. in the right constituencies at the right time and winning and winning big as a result. Well, bearing that in mind, I'm going to come to Tony on this because he was speaking uh, to the Taoiseach in Brussels earlier today. But this notion developed at some point last night as the exit poll came in that Boris Johnson was going to win such an overwhelming majority that what was on the cards, therefore, was the comfort zone in which to go for a softer Brexit. Why do people think this? Why do people assume that Boris Johnson, who adopted a very hard line, who is insistent on the option of the crash out having to be on the table in order to leverage the best deal? Why are people now saying that, well, this majority now means we're facing a softer Brexit and a softer Tory party? Well, I think that, um, you know, when Boris Johnson was campaigning to be leader, it was very easy for him to make uh, all of these claims. And uh, there was a fairly large degree of belligerent rhetoric, uh, eyeballing the EU, showing them that we mean business, they'll look into the whites of our eyes and see that we're not afraid of no deal. But actually when he got into the negotiations, both on the no deal issue and uh, on the economic future relationship with the EU, the obligations that that would uh, in, entail. And then when he get into the Irish question, I think he, he got a bit of a cold shower in terms of what a customs border on the island of Ireland would actually mean for the security situation. And, you know, I think he's been on a fairly short education in a lot of things. So, I mean, people that I've spoken to on the British side have said that, well, look, you know, once uh, he wins the election, we can expect a more ambitious trading relationship uh, from the British side uh, than perhaps he's been letting on in the campaign trail. Um, but uh, this was put to Leo Varadkar actually this afternoon, uh, today being Friday, of course, uh, after the 
EU summit ended, uh, he was speaking to reporters and he was asked about what he felt uh, the real Boris Johnson looked like, given that he had spent time with him, they'd had sit-down meetings, they had the famous 90-minute uh, meeting in the Wirral uh, in the beginning of October, uh, and this is how Leo Varadkar characterised the Boris Johnson that we might get to see. I've met uh, Prime Minister Johnson on a few occasions and we've spoken a lot on the phone, um, but I certainly can't read his mind, uh, nor do I know his mind. Um, but if I was to guess um, from our interactions, um, I think he is um, somebody who is broadly uh, an economic and social liberal, um, and he's somebody who is going to want to have a close relationship with the European Union uh, and will want uh, us to have a um, trade deal that is close uh, and also um, a, a future relationship that goes beyond trade, uh, that goes into economic partnership, um, citizens' rights and also a political partnership too. Um, but that all remains to be seen. Um, what we have though is a joint political declaration and that says what it says uh, and that is the basis for uh, the next phase of negotiations uh, until it changes um, and hasn't changed yet. Sean. On that, what do what do we have to go on? Boris Johnson has is many things to many people. So why are people assured that this is a man who is going to go down the road parallel next year of trying to cement a trade relationship with the European Union, but also open up to the United States, which will expect greater divergence? So again, why do we expect a man moving towards a closer relationship with Europe when all of his rhetoric has been about divergence and making the UK more open to cementing trade deals with the US in particular, but others as well. Well, maybe this is the, the, the bit on which Boris Johnson starts to become a bit more like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, trying to satisfy uh, different constituencies. Uh, there are some bits of his Conservative Party are rabidly against the European Union and think that doing a trade deal with the United States will solve all of their problems. It won't. The, the trade volumes just aren't there uh, to support it uh, economically. But they'll still want to do something. Donald Trump, again today, in the wake of that uh, election victory, uh, saying, I want to get a deal done, I want to get it done quickly. And his ambassador here in London saying, when the president wants something done quickly, he gets it done quickly, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, it may also be a, a convenient uh, whip to try and uh, flick at the European Union to see if they can move a bit faster and try and get a trade deal done because, as I say, the bigger part of, of UK trade is with the European Union and they need to keep as much of that uh, open to the greatest extent possible. Uh, and that, I think, is probably going to be more of a priority for them. But he will, uh, I mean, if Donald Trump offers him some kind of a quick and easy deal that he can sell as a, a, a short, instant hit... Uh, to the British people. He'll do that, but I don't think he's going to be able to sell the pass. I don't think he'd want to either. Uh, I think he is actually genuine when he says he wants to protect things like the NHS uh, and uh, upgrade environmental standards. And there are issues where he is at loggerheads with uh, Donald Trump's administration, and I just can't see uh, a meeting of minds there at all. Uh, it's not just the, the British establishment that will be opposed to certain things. I, I think it is uh, Boris Johnson personally but he now has freedom, which he didn't have before. And this is where we're going to find out the real measure of the man, uh, because he doesn't have to uh, buy off too many constituencies. He is the prime minister who's delivered the, the Tories a stonking great majority. 
and put the potential of stable government back into this country for a five-year period. So he has an enormous pool of political capital now, and how he chooses to spend that is going to be the really interesting part of Boris Johnson's time in number 10 Downing Street. Whether he decides to uh, pursue it in a, a positive way, uh, in a Euro-friendly way, I mean, a lot of people have said this guy isn't a real Brexiter at all. Uh, he doesn't hate Europe. He spent a, an awful lot of time there, uh, as did his father, who was on the, the radio earlier today, saying that as an official he'd put in place some uh, EU environmental protections, and he really wants to see all that sort of stuff continuing on, and he expects it will continue on. So I think Boris Johnson may actually tack uh, more in the direction of trying to do uh, deals and agreements with the European Union. I think the trade bit is going to be the harder part. I think there's more meeting of minds and also listening to, to some of the stuff that was coming out of the Council today. Uh, there's an opening from the European side. I think they would like to reset the relationship with Britain. There's a, def there's a decision has been taken now. They know that this withdrawal agreement is going to go ahead. The next step is to try and make the best of it and get as good a relationship uh, as possible between the European Union and the United Kingdom. And I think a lot of people, again, as part of this uh, idea of putting the whole Brexit mess behind them to the greatest ex extent possible, will actually like the more positive-sounding aspect of doing a good deal uh, with Europe and having a good relationship with Europe. And if they get additional trade breaks with America, well, all the merrier. Tony, the Taoiseach and, and, and uh, the Prime Minister have, have exchanged a phone call this evening and uh, restoring power sharing in Northern Ireland is one of the things they discussed. But obviously some of the other things they're going to discuss are the workings, the future workings of the relationship between while it's not a negotiation, obviously, it's just a conversation, would be the future working of the relationships between uh, Europe and the UK, the connection point of which is still Ireland, and that still has to be figured out. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely right, and that's going to be another big issue for everybody next year. But I mean, just briefly to pick up on what Sean was saying there about uh, you know, environmental standards in the UK. Uh, we're going to hear a lot about uh, this phrase, level playing field, uh, in the trade negotiations, which essentially means the U EU saying to Britain, OK, you can access the single market, you can have a free trade agreement with us, but you're going to have to sign up to a pledge not to undercut the EU economy. Now, at a, at a general level, that simply means that a low-regulation UK could undercut uh, the European economies. Uh, there's been talk of the Singapore on Thames, uh, a f fearful entity that uh, terrifies uh, European economies and, and European capitals. But this week, we had the European Green Deal announced, which is a major signature policy launched by the European Commission, which is going to have binding legally binding targets that are going to be a lot stricter now on, on carbon emissions. Um, and one of those things, for example, is to reduce uh, diesel emissions or carbon emissions from cars, uh, which currently stand at something like 95 grams per kilometre. They want to bring that down to zero in 10 years. Now, the, the problem with having the UK out of this equation on your doorstep is that it creates a kind of a paralysing effect because if the EU wants to proceed with this legislation to meet that target of being climate neutral by 2050, um, they're going to have to bring in legislation, regulations. But if ministers coming to Brussels are going to, are going to say, well, look, the UK over there isn't going to be bound by any of this. They're going to make cars which are not going to be 
meeting these targets and they're going to undercut us. So that has a kind of a paralyzing effect in that the legislation at EU level doesn't happen. It gets kind of bogged down in this um, fear that what's the point in you know, putting in place these regulations and these targets if your big powerful neighbour uh, off the shore, uh, off the coast is going to be undercutting you at every at every stage. So that's really going to be a big theme uh, in these negotiations. But to get back to your original question, yes, of course, uh, parallel to these trade negotiations is going to be the implementation of the, uh, of the withdrawal agreement. And of course, we know that this deal was done in short order very quickly back in October. We've discussed this quite a lot on the podcast, the famous meeting in, in the world. Boris Johnson went into that meeting uh, still looking for a customs border on the island of Ireland uh, and having alternative arrangements to make everything kind of work okay. Uh, he came out of it having abandoned that idea and having pretty much embraced a customs and regulatory border on the Irish Sea, having these checks at the point of entry into northern ports and Even airports. though he denied them for the duration uh, of, of, of the general election campaign, he outright denied there would be any checks despite having signed up to them. Yeah, and this is the reason why there is so much bitterness in Northern Ireland uh, as more of this deal becomes apparent. Now, the, the, the problem is that the, the, to get the thing over the line, the EU and UK weren't going to be in the negotiating room figuring out which goods coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would be uh, subject to tariffs and controls and which goods wouldn't be. So they basically had this blanket uh, commitment to deal with all of this in what's called the Joint Committee, or to be more precise, a a specialised subcommittee which will be kind of under the overall architecture of the Joint Committee. Now, the Joint Committee effectively will be the EU in the shape of the European Commission and uh, officials and uh, when it matters, uh, officials from member states and ministers. And on the other other side, you'll have the UK uh, led by a minister. And this joint committee will have to implement what has been withdrew- agreed in the withdrawal agreement. Uh, and that's going to be a very mucky and messy process. Now, w- what's going to happen is that there will be a specialised subcommittee to implement the Irish protocol to figure out how onerous or light these checks and controls on goods going from uh, Great Britain to Northern Ireland uh, will have to be. I know you both uh, went into great detail on this last week in the podcast, but uh, how you implement that is going to be a problem. And because of the election and because uh, of this mantra from the UK, from Downing Street, that uh, we're going to do this in a year, we're not going to have a transition period extended, uh, it it means that... uh, Whitehall has been paralysed as to how, to how to address this pro, this joint committee, uh, these checks and controls, how are you going to implement them? Uh, and, and everybody's been running around going, what is this going to mean? I mean, you've, we, we've had the Treasury slides that were leaked last week, which you, you guys talked about in the podcast last week. We had another leak from Dexiu saying there's no way that the free trade agreement is going to be done in time because the Irish protocol is going to hold everything up. Well, um, well I mean, on so, that... So this if, is going to be if, a major problem. If, if this was uh, steamrolled effectively during the election campaign by Boris Johnson simply denying there would be a problem, and if the objections of the DUP were similarly steamrolled when the uh, withdrawal agreement was being amended after those discussions that Taoiseach had with Boris Johnson uh, in the world. Sean, from your end of it, can you see whether or not Northern Ireland, which has largely fallen to the bottom of the political agenda in Great Britain in the recent past, why a duty of care would be borne in mind when the Joint Committee discussions are being hammered out? Well, look, uh, 
the Northern Ireland deal, the, the aspects of it, the front stop, as we've been trying to call it uh, these days, that's one of the aspects of the future relationship where we have a, a certain amount of clarity. So there's a certain amount of stuff written down on paper there that will have to be implemented. And uh, they can't, you know, they can only fudge it so far. Uh, when you're in a general election, things get said to win votes. And the key priority for people in Great Britain and in England and Wales in particular is doing Brexit, getting that withdrawal agreement through. Uh, they're really not concerned about the, the uh, intricacies of the Northern Ireland trade relationship uh, and any customs regulations or checks that might apply there. Northern Ireland doesn't figure in things like uh, the opinion polls or uh, a lot of the uh, talk that goes on, a lot of research, a lot of stuff is just done about Great Britain, even the name Brexit, it's about Britain. It's not about the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland. It does tend to get left out to the edge. And we saw months ago some of the opinion polling deep polling, uh, asking people if it came to a choice between Brexit or uh, Northern Ireland leaving the UK, which would you choose? And overwhelmingly, English voters were choosing Brexit. So that shows you the kind of political place uh, where Northern Ireland uh, occupies in, in the national uh, thinking uh, of Great Britain. Uh, it doesn't generally figure unless there's a problem. And if there's a problem, you try and solve the problem. So I think they will try and solve problems as they arise. And the civil service will be very diligent in trying to do that. Uh, but we've seen in the way that the DUP were absolutely shafted just after the Tory party conference, uh, that if people get in the way of Boris Johnson's political objectives, that's what happens. Right. Uh, and they're not the first ones. He purged his own party of people who didn't like the direction he was moving in. Uh, he was very ruthless about that as well. So things will get done. Uh, Tony, the DUP are down two MPs. The Nationalist uh, and broader Remain parties are now in the majority in Northern Ireland. So from the point of view of getting the Assembly up and running again, does the Assembly interact with the Joint Committee at all in terms of bringing forward the concerns of Northern Ireland? Or will there be a certain onus on the Irish government to act on its duty of care to the many Irish citizens that live in Northern Ireland and make sure that the impact of the withdrawal agreement and the disruption to uh, trade out of Northern Ireland and into Northern Ireland to ameliorate any damage that might be there? Well, I think for, from all perspectives, everybody would want the Assembly to be functioning and functioning properly during this period of implementing the Irish protocol and uh, all of the checks and controls that will be needed on the Irish Sea. Uh, and there is uh, Article 15 in the withdrawal agreement which provides for um, the British government to, if they like, to outsource some of this work uh, to Northern Ireland, to the Stormont Assembly, if that gives the Assembly a, a bit more ownership. But of course, the new uh, reality of the of the revised withdrawal agreement is that the assembly will get a say uh, down the road you know four years after this uh, whole thing comes into effect at the end of the transition um, the the question of ireland's role in this is is, is going to be very interesting because in the divorce proceedings you know ireland had a fairly straightforward uh, defensive position uh, and they sought the EU support for that and they got it wholeheartedly, avoid a hard border. Now that uh, negotiating objective has been met by the Irish government and the EU 
Um, but Ireland is still going to be in play uh, with the uh, joint committee. And, you know, Ireland, I think, will, will be minded to try and make sure that, you know, everybody brings their bona fides to the table to make this whole operation as as light touch as possible, um, you know, to make sure the checks can be de-traumatized, to use that phrase that uh, Michel Barnier introduced uh, about a year and a half ago. There will be a lot of goodwill on all sides to make sure that you're not simply going to leave Northern Ireland as an angry, confused, uh, underperforming economy. Of course, the flip side is that Northern Ireland will remain in the single market and that whole uh, potential dividend hasn't really been uh, elevated to headline level uh, in the past few weeks because most of the heat on this has been about uh, the impact on traders who need stuff to go back and forward uh, to Great Britain. Um, the, the danger for Ireland is that, you know, like the way this is going to work is that the Joint Committee will look at what categories of goods can move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, what individual goods can move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland without having to be tariffed because it's clear that those goods are not going to pose a risk to the single market. They're not going to flood across the border uh, and that's all fine. But what happens if, you know, five years after this joint committee has done its work, suddenly the market has adapted and unscrupulous traders see a little gap that uh, certain kinds of goods can be brought into the single market, into the Irish Republic, uh, as a way to avoid a European tariff or to avoid, uh, you know, European controls. Uh, and, you know, in five years' time, if suddenly there's a, a problem, well, the thing will be closed at that point and the UK may not have any major incentive to get back around the table to, you know, start opening up tariff lines and, and as, as to what can or can't get into Northern Ireland. So you could see member states taking a fairly hard line on this, saying that we want to be sure that, uh, you know, any exemptions we give to goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, that those exemptions are at a minimum. Uh, and we want to be sure that uh, over time this stuff doesn't start to leak into uh, the single market. So that's going to be a difficult, uh, I think, balancing act for the Irish government. But again, they feel, and talking to Irish officials, they feel that, you know, in the round, it's in no one's interest that you get a belligerent, angry, uh, you know, spectrum of traders and politicians in Northern Ireland uh, constantly upset about how this Irish protocol is being implemented. And of course, don't forget to, to finish the point, you know, the consent mechanism is there, it's real. And if the application of these checks and controls and the impact on VAT and on supply chains, if it proves to be really problematic over time, then there could be pressure on the Assembly to, to vote to pull out of it. But of course, the problem then is that would be the assembly voting by a simple majority to restore a hard border on the island of Ireland. So you can see how, as we as we go forward through the years, that this issue is always going to be there. Now, I did put this question to Leo Varadkar at his briefing uh, this afternoon, being Friday, uh, about the role Ireland would play in the Joint Committee and uh, in the that, that future phase that we're going to be entering into uh, next year. This is what he had to say. It's now clear the withdrawal agreement will, will be ratified and the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland will, will take effect uh, at the end of the transition, uh, which will mean, uh, you know, significant changes in Northern Ireland, the, the, the customs and regulatory border and the Irish Sea, uh, points of entry and so on. And, and we've seen that that is causing grave anxiety for businesses in, in Northern Ireland. Um, 
I mean, Ireland is going to have an enhanced position in, in the Joint Committee and in the trade negotiations. Do you see Ireland having a, an advocacy role to try and minimise and mitigate those checks and controls as far as possible on the Irish Sea? Thank you. Yeah, well, we do want to do that. Um, it's, you know, we've never wanted to have a border uh, between North and South, nor have we ever wanted a border uh, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we're against Brexit. But once the decision was taken to proceed with Brexit and to leave the customs union and the single market as well, that made it inevitable that there had to be checks and controls somewhere. Uh, and that having been made inevitable by the decisions of others, um, we took the view, as did the majority of people in Northern Ireland, that if there have to be checks and controls, it's better that they happen at a small number of ports and airports uh, than across a 300-kilometre land border. Um, but we want those to be as minimal as possible. Uh, we want any disruption to business in Northern Ireland to be as minimal as possible. And we also want Northern Ireland to be in a position to take advantage of the fact that they will continue to have uh, access to the uh, market in Great Britain. Um, and that they will also continue to have access to the European single market. So potentially an opportunity for Northern Ireland if we can get it right. And there is time to get it right uh, between now and when the protocol comes into effect at the end of 2020. Um, and also uh, there's the opportunity there uh, as well in the context of negotiating the trade deal to mitigate some of that. And I think that, think that, that, that can be done. That'll certainly be, certainly be our objective. Sean, to look elsewhere uh, in the United Kingdom, Scotland is is one of the areas where there was a, a radical result that went against Boris Johnson. Uh, people already talking about a second independence referendum and the frustration the Tory resistance to that would cause in galvanising the winds behind the Scottish National Party. What implications will this have? Is this likely to become an important dynamic in British politics over the next few years? Oh, for sure, for sure. And it's not just any old people talking about a second referendum. It was the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon herself, who came out today, Friday, at a midday news conference and said, next week we are going to table a basically a legal document explaining how a second independence referendum would have no legal impediments to it. And she is going to demand uh, that uh, Westminster transfer powers, as they call it, to give back to uh, Edinburgh the right to call a, a referendum. Um, she's saying it's not for a, a government in London to decide whether the Scottish people uh, should hold a referendum. It's for the people of Scotland to do so. And one of the uh, lines from the uh, SNP is that they say, look, if you take the totality of results in 2014, 16, 17 and 19 in general elections, Scottish uh, general elections, uh, referendum results, Scotland is voting time after time after time to stay in the European Union and also to seek uh, to pursue its own uh, path towards self-determination. Uh, so the battle for the second in, uh, independence referendum in Scotland begins next week and the SNP are very much buoyed by this election result. They came roaring back in a lot of constituencies in Scotland. They cut the uh, Conservative seats in half. They've reduced Labour down to one seat uh, in what used to be one of the, the red redoubts of that party uh, up until about 20 years ago, really. Uh, but the SNP now are in the ascendant in Scotland. There's no doubt about that. And their message 
of independence and fighting against Brexit uh, very much resonates. Again, Nicola Sturgeon saying you may have a mandate to take England out of the European Union, but you absolutely don't have one to take Scotland out of the European Union. So the lines of conflict are absolutely drawn there. Two big winners from that uh, vote on Thursday, Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon, but they are going to be butting heads, no doubt about it. And do we have any idea, Sean, when we might see a new cabinet and how Boris Johnson, would we get any indication of how he is minded, how this new government is going to be run as he populates uh, his new cabinet? When will we know that? When will we see its complexion? Uh, I don't see it happening before Christmas. Um, I mean, obviously, some people would like to get Christmas presents of a, a new minister, but I think his first priority is, to coin a phrase, getting Brexit done. So they are going to move uh, to introduce or reintroduce uh, in the new parliamentary session once it's opened by the, the uh, head of state, the Queen, uh, the uh, withdrawal um, bill, uh, the withdrawal agreement bill. Uh, that's got to move to committee stage finish up its its uh, other stages in the House of Commons and then move to the House of Lords. And from what we're hearing, uh, and again, Boris Johnson briefed the Taoiseach on it this evening, uh, but we don't know the inner workings of it yet, but it seems to be that they are going to try and push this thing through possibly uh, before uh, January 1st or very early in January, because, of course, the European Union, uh, the European Parliament in particular, have to go through their own processes to get everything lined up and legal and done and dusted before the 31st of January. So they are under the gun uh, when it comes to trying to get this bit of legislation through. But now seems like a, a rather excellent time as far as the Tories are concerned because they have the opposition absolutely on the ropes. They have purged their own ranks of dissenters. They have a whole bunch of new people who don't know how the parliament works and therefore can't get up to all kinds of parliamentary skullduggery. Uh, they can push this thing through quickly. They will want to, these all these new people, and all the reinvigorated Brexiters will want to get this uh, through the Parliament quickly. And then the House of Lords might get squeezed into the Christmas break. Uh, and they probably wouldn't want to spend uh, an awful lot of time going back and forth with amendments to the legislation uh, during the festive season. Uh, so use what you have to absolutely get this thing through as quickly as possible. Tony, then we're looking down the barrel probably of a, a, a busy session in January for the plenary of the European Parliament. And then what? Will the real business of trade talks begin sometime late February, potentially early March? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like a fairly um, realistic timetable. I mean, what the, the European Commission, again, is going to be leading the trade negotiations just that the way they led the divorce negotiations. Michel Barnier, once again, will be the figurehead. Um, it, it's going to be a much uh, more detailed negotiation. Um, but, but the Commission has been doing a lot of work with member states already. You know, they, they had a whole bunch of seminars back in early 2018 They've been working on the uh, political declaration, which basically is the blueprint for that future relationship uh, in great detail. Those seminars are going to be revived again uh, so that all member states ha have a clear idea of what they want out of these trade negotiations. And the Commission will have a clear idea from those member states uh, what they need to do when they're in the chair. Uh, you're going to have uh, a lot more national experts you know taking part in working groups that are scrutinizing the negotiations 
much more ownership, I think, by member states, including Ireland, on all of the different dossiers. Uh, so they're going to be hitting the ground running uh, in, in early January. Uh, the, the Commission will draw up draft negotiating guidelines. They'll go to what's called the General Affairs Council, which is basically the member states, uh, and the member states will then uh, approve uh, the negotiating mandate, uh, and then Michel Barnier will bring his teams into those trade negotiations, probably uh, yeah, late February, early March. Phil Hogan, uh, the Trade Commissioner, said before Paddy's Day, uh, he, he reckoned. But, uh, but the, thing, the whole thing is that the, the same process will have to happen in the UK, but of course there, yes, of course, Boris Johnson has a big majority, but as Sean said, you're going to have loads of MPs who are in, in the House of Commons for the first time who will suddenly be contemplating things like negotiating trade mandates um, and you know there, there's no guarantee that that process is going to be uh, you know quick and easy for Boris Johnson either um, so you know there's going to be a fair amount of pressure on the UK side despite the big majority that he has right. uh, then of course we get to July and Boris Johnson is going to have to decide does he extend the transition period that's a deadline for him to decide that so we're going to get into a fairly choppy political uh, you know seascape uh, fairly quickly right. notwithstanding uh, the talk of the filling of the seats of the house of commons as we go forward from today it sounds like they're clearing up the chairs behind you uh, i've literally been thrown out of the council so i'm, I'm in the lobby of the council <laughs> having been told right. off by security staff so i i, I literally am out the door okay well for me colm omonga at rt's deputy foreign editor in dublin from me sean whelan rt's london correspondent in westminster and tony Connolly, rt's europe editor in brussels thanks for listening